I'm Alan Chase, and this is Coffee Talk. Hello, and welcome back to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian, and we have another episode of Coffee Talk for you. This week's guest is the chair of ear training here at Berkeley, Alan Chase. Alan has played on a ton of recordings and performances with folks like Rashid Ali, John Zorn, Gunther Schiller, and the legendary jazz violinist Leroy Jenkins. He talks about his first day teaching way back in 1981, and he also gets pretty deep about the connections between composition and ear training. As always, these interviews will also be available on YouTube, and we have a lot of other great content on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So check us out, like us, and subscribe. Here is our interview with Alan Chase. Welcome, everybody. I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the guitar department. Welcome to an episode of our Coffee Talk. We have Alan Chase here, who's the chair of the ear training department. Alan, welcome. It's good Thank to see you. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. And we've got Cheryl Bailey, as usual, assistant chair. Hey, Cheryl. Hey, everybody. I, unfortunately, I don't have my fancy Berkeley cup, but it, it does say have a smashing day, and it has a guitar on it, so I hope that's okay. That's great. Does it have a guitar and a pinata? It's a, and a cactus. Yeah, it's very festive. <laughs> That's great. Uh, and Ian Steed, our senior department coordinator. Hey, Ian. Hey, how's it going? Good to see you. Um, Alan, thank you so much for being on Coffee Talk today. It's my pleasure. So you already had your coffee, you were saying. I did, yeah. I had, I had plenty of coffee today, so I'm not drinking it right this minute. I just have my water here. What was it though? What what did you what'd you have? This We're very interested well, to see I, what everybody's drinking. I had the French press, medium dark roast. Mm -hmm. uh, ground it last night, so I didn't have to make a lot of noise this morning. And I had a little uh, soy creamer, and uh, uh, silk unflavored soy creamer, and one teaspoon of sugar. That's how I do it. Yeah, I like this. See, it makes it's sense. Two and a half cups. <laughs> It makes sense that someone who's a composer and a performer and a person who knows about the ear is that detailed, I think. <laughs> I wasn't sure how much you needed to know about my that was, I think that was great. It was really good. Very similar to the metal coffee of Joe Stump, actually, in a lot of ways. So that's good. Oh. Yeah. I'm interesting. Yeah. So, um, Alan, one of the reasons we wanted to have you here is because of the really deep connection between developing your ear and developing your skills on your instrument. And so I think we wanted to start kind of where we start with everybody, which is you've had a long history with Berkeley and a lot of first days there. Um, what was what was one of your first days like when you were at Berkeley? Well, I'll never forget my first day teaching at Berkeley. I have so I I could this could be the whole interview because I, <laughs> I had a first time I walked into Berkeley when I inquired about being a student, but I ended up I was not a student at Berkeley, but so that story doesn't really have such a great happy ending. But anyway, uh, and then uh, I already had a degree at that point. Um, basically, they I went up to an admissions window and they told me that I would have to be a freshman again, 
and take all the freshman classes. So I didn't know how it worked, you know. Mm -hmm. This was in 1980. Um, in 81, I was hired to teach at Berkeley. I was taking uh, graduate courses at New England Conservatory and the uh, now head of the Boston Musicians Union, Pat Hollenbeck, was my teacher. And he said, well, you should teach this at Berkeley. I had a composition degree. And they hired me, uh, they were interested kind of over the summer when I applied and said, well, it'll depend on enrollment. We probably have enough faculty. But in August, I got a call for some more interviews and I got hired by uh, Ted Pease and Alex Ulanovsky, the heads of uh, Arranging and Harmony. And I taught uh, a very heavy load of part-time. It was called part-time. It was 23, 25 hours, contact hours of classroom teaching a week five days a week, five hours a day, and a meeting every day for, I think, four days a week. Um, and um, my first hour was teaching species counterpoint. I prepared a very, a, a lecture that I thought was bulletproof. You know, it had the history of species counterpoint, talked about Zarlino and, uh, you know, all, <clears throat> all kinds of obscure theoretical <laughs> topics and I very quickly realized this is not appropriate at all when I started interacting you know I gave like almost an hour lecture and then we started doing stuff on the board and I'm like I love these students and I love teaching and I'm so excited to be here but I actually was immensely relieved like I don't have to do an hour lecture on the history of music theory every week what I need to do is connect with the students and talk about intervals and mm -hmm. melody and you know, there were more basic things that we needed to work on. And the first student I interacted with was uh, a woman about my age, which was 25, um, who was wearing completely black leather and was a guitarist. And she was like a gigging rock guitarist. I, I wish I remembered her name. I could look it up. But, you know, I had come from like a composition degree at a state university and then New England Conservatory. So it was a different vibe in terms of stylistic diversity. And I liked that, you know, so. You know, I wonder um, mm -hmm. with the way that you first encountered teaching ear training and the way you've developed it as a faculty member and then as the chair, mm -hmm. um, it seems like it really connects really deeply with the way that you play and mm -hmm. with your... Um, performance career as a saxophonist. Could you talk a little bit about like the real practical interactions if something really stood out to you and you're thinking about teaching ear training, like what are the things you felt like you developed in the curriculum that reflected what you needed as a player? Well, the thing that's, um, yeah, that's a deep question. So the thing that's so important to me um, and that I've tried to emphasize since I've been chair, and it's just been—it's just grown in clarity and importance to me gradually over the whole time I've been a musician—is the connection between the ear and the instrument, between inner hearing, which is a kind of long-term memory, <clears throat> but it's a—it's a complicated kind of long-term memory because it's not, to in a way, it's it's relative pitch for most people. Mm -hmm. um, and not so it's not a memory of a specific thing it's a memory of relationships you know if you think about it like <laughs> how does the sound relate to the tonic which may be one of 12 different notes in any octave you know that kind of thing so um, and that's just talking about single pitches but um, 
when when I started to get a handle on that and to be able to hear things in my head, um, it took me out of the world of just trying to pass ear training as a student and as a musician and into the wonderful, mysterious, creative world of trying to play what you hear and trying to hear what other people are playing and to interact with them live and to, you know, not just search for notes, trying up to 12 until you get the right answer, you know, multiple <laughs> choice, but to actually have a little stronger hypothesis about what you're trying to hit, you know, and uh, to the point where you're really confident. I mean, a point I just, just comes to mind in saying that, that I want to emphasize is it's not just about like having a better inner hearing connection with your uh, sense of pitch, better recognition and kind of being able to imagine a pitch. It makes your time better and your tone better. And to me, that is so important because, um, and I think sometimes we think of it, you know, we don't, until you've experienced that, maybe you don't really uh, know how true it is. But when you're confident, like on saxophone, and I, I imagine this is true in guitar, when you when you pull the string or when you put air through the horn, if you are pretty sure what the pitch that's about to come out is and your fingers didn't just go to it and hope, you know, then you play it with a certain physical energy that is confident. And mm -hmm. when you when you feel inwardly unsure, especially when you're improvising and you're inwardly unsure that the next note is going to sound the way you imagined it. If you're thinking just kind of in terms of an upward gesture instead of a specific pitch, you have this little hesitation in your time. Mm. And so you don't, you can't really groove when you have no idea what you're about, to, <laughs> what notes about to come out, <laughs> you know, to be mm -hmm. extreme about it. Um, that, that's a funny uh, thing because oftentimes I say to my student, think about the Mona Lisa Leonardo didn't just get a bunch of buckets of paint and start throwing it at the wall and it, it appeared there had to be obviously there was craft and and you know understanding perspective and and technique but there was a vision inside that that he was saw and it was very purposeful and to develop your craft in a way where you have all those skills that you can be purposeful in what the notes you choose, which I think is as an improviser, that's the fun because you're always hearing things that you can't play and that keeps you coming back. But just going back to the thing of, of being hearing something, you have to have an idea that you hear instead of just moving your fingers and you hope something good's going to come out. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's, that's the amazing process of working on your ear um, and having the faith and the discipline to work on your, because I don't, you know, it's not always the most tangible thing. So I, I just wonder what you, um, in, in that, discussing that with students or developing that with students, that, okay, trying to get to this place of what do you hear and um, trying to keep, you know, bringing them back all the time because it is to have that faith you don't necessarily see you know day to day an improvement right you might go through periods where you feel like you're going nowhere at least that was for me so you know what what are your thoughts on that in terms of um 
getting, keeping students inspired to keep coming back and work on because there's something that they hear in there and, and to develop those skills that they can become, it can become more clear that they actually understand what they hear. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that uh, ability to keep going with it is um, about pacing and how difficult the challenges are that you create for yourself. You know, just like you have to practice something slow to play it fast, um, you know, and that's true in like sports training and reprogramming yourself if you wanted to be a dancer and it's true in instrumental technique and it's also true in ear training you have to focus on a limited number of things that you can build on and then take a small amount of time with like really clear mental focus and you have to do it regularly and if you do that um, I believe almost every person can get to the point where they have you know a really good usable level of skill in musical hearing. I've almost never met a student who just couldn't do it for some reason, some neurological or physical reason that we couldn't put our finger on or, or maybe could. Literally almost never. And I'm talking out of tens of thousands of students who have gone through the program. And, you know, we'll, we'll often see people who have really uh, big challenges with it. Um, and so, I mean, a couple of things I like to get out of the way. One is the belief in um, talent, inborn talent, or, and it often goes with perfect pitch or absolute pitch. Um, you know, current research on that really is different from what I was taught kind of anecdotally as a young person. People used to say, oh, perfect pitch is inborn. Only some people have it. One in 10,000, just miraculously this very round number of one in 10,000 people has perfect pitch. And I think, wow, I, I know seven or eight of them. That's odd, you know. Um, <laughs> and what, what if you had perfect pitch and you weren't a musician? Mm -hmm. Like, would you know you had perfect pitch? Like how, you know, like if one in 10,000 people has perfect pitch, that would be odd, you know, especially if they didn't even live in the world of uh, 12 note chromatic scale of an equal temperament and so on so obviously that doesn't make any sense scientifically and finally we've realized that absolute pitch is not um one in ten thousand it's it's uh, has to do a lot with how children use or don't use the skills and it's more of a thing that some people retain it seems to be retained in certain cultures, maybe cultures with tonal languages or cultures that have, do a lot of early childhood music education. And, you know, it's still not really known, but that isn't the determining factor of whether you're going to be a good musician. So let's just put that aside. But the other thing is like, well, my friend is just really good at it, you know, and I'm not. So I guess, you know, I'm not an ear player or something like that. Well, your friend learned it. And you can learn it like babies don't just come out going like, yeah, that's C minor. You know, they uh, <laughs> they learned it like they may not remember learning it. They may spend enormous amount of time fooling around with a musical instrument and kind of get a glimpse of like a system and then kind of start to remember the notes and so on uh, when they're very young. And so they you know that what we call talent is often just work done early, mm. you know. Um, mm. I mean, there may be different 
uh, aptitudes, you know, but I really question how those things are tested and so on. I, I just mm -hmm. think it's mostly about motivation. And if you can make it so it's fun to learn and you love it and you make progress, it will snowball until you're really good at it. It's not as hard to learn ear training as it is to learn French. Mm. And basically all people in France learned French. Uh, so it's just a matter of time and exposure, you know, uh, and lots of other people too. So um, uh, I, I don't want to go on too long about mm -hmm. that, but, but um, to me that, so for example, people will put on an app and it has 12 chord types and they'll go like, oh, I only got six of them right. Mm -hmm. You know, well, I would stop them at that point and I'd go like, why don't you narrow it down to major and minor triads in root position and see if you can get 100% of those right. And if you missed one, let's try to figure out what's going on when you missed one. Mm -hmm. Maybe when you hear uh, F major and then you hear A minor, you thought major because you're kind of feeling like it, it sounded like part of an F major seven chord, you know. So maybe it's not random that you made that mistake. Maybe it's actually an insight into how you're processing the sound in context. You know, things like that. And then, you know, and then add something or take two things that are really different, like sus for and diminished and make sure you just totally get those like instantly and like, OK, now I can put that aside, you know, mm -hmm. just review it periodically and then start taking some. But if you try to do all of the stuff at once, of course, you can't do it all. You know, it's confusing. And, you know, the method of practicing is often a problem, like people are just practicing identifying things in isolation and then they don't recognize them in context that's really different chords that you know a minor chord that's the six minor chord sounds different from the four minor chord in a major key or the one minor chord and it could be a surprise or it could not be a surprise depending on the context so all these things are uh we, we you need you probably need a teacher and some help you know? <laughs> Because it's a lot to sort out, you know, and I, I, that's what we're working on is trying to help people. Alan, I, I think that's great that you're talking about that process of because I think it seems overwhelming and, mm -hmm. and yeah. intimidating. And I think you're spot on in terms of, yeah, you can learn this and we break it down and there's a process to learning it. It's not some magical thing. You know what? I had a student one time as I've worked with him a long time and he's worked on his ear and as soon as he started to really be able to hear intervals and then these different chord progressions he had a great way to describe he said when I used to listen to music it just sounded like soup like a big <laughs> blob and I couldn't and, and it is so similar to language right because you mentioned about people speaking French or whatever you know when you first start to even learn a language you go oh my god they're speaking so fast I don't know if I'll ever get and then you hang out with it and you and you start to work on it and you go oh that woman said something about her cat climb you know <laughs> like oh how did I know how to do that but it is that yeah. process you take step by step and then that soup all of a sudden you oh you can taste all the ingredients in it oh there's some saffron in there and there's some you know right. and, and so it that I think that's really important for students to to know that you can do that and there's a way to do it yeah. and and go over to Alan Chase at the ear training department <laughs> and they will help you out. We have 33 people who are really devoted to it. I mean, the thing is, I, I always tell entering students like every one of these people in our department is none of them go home at night and go, 
what I do for a living is ear training. You know, they're all musicians <laughs> who teach ear training because it's a tool for music. You know, mm -hmm. they might be uh, trying to get songs, you know, country rock songs placed on uh, television, or they might be writing classical uh, music for, you know, uh, microtonal uh commissioned <laughs> compositions. I have somebody writing a microtonal opera in my department or playing jazz trumpet, you know, or bluegrass. I mean, they do all kinds of different things. And ear training is a tool for them that they're passionate about and skilled about teaching. So they're always thinking about what we're talking about now, which is how do you apply it to your music? And they, you know, last night, faculty members in my department who are all tired and working really hard and struggling you know very successfully to teach remotely in, a, in this environment and doing a great job but they, but it's it's a lot of work and yet they're sending me have you ever heard this this recording check this out i transcribed this i mean somebody in my department jilson shacknick sent me a transcription of a movie theme he's like this is so interesting it's you know it was uh uh, one of the famous Italian movie composers is, a, you know, and I mean, they can't stop. They love uh, music and ear training is a way to, is a tool in music, you know. See, that's what I think is really important. I mean, there are a couple things that struck me about what you're saying, but one that relates to Cheryl's comment is that it's almost like with ear training, I feel like we have a two problem problem. There's like structuring how you're going to work on it on your ear and on your instrument. And then there's the way you feel about it. And I think people are really afraid of ear training because they're afraid that if they don't get it right away, it means they're not a real musician and that mm -hmm. they don't belong. And that, and that scares them so much that they run away from it and yeah. they hide from it. And then they sort of have this, then it also distorts reality because instead of being able to see your ear training teacher as a musician who has a command of this tool, in the way that your guitar teacher has a command of that tool and you're all in the group together and you're just at different places and you're learning, you see this thing that's going to be discovered about you that will point out that you don't belong and that you should be kicked off the island by this person who's like keeping tabs on how well you do this horrible thing that you don't understand. <laughs> You know what I mean? And and that's not real. Like the, your ear training t-shirt is an incredible performer, composer, musician who has a command of teaching you this specific tool that is an integral part of you. And if you don't feel comfortable with it, it's not that you're bad at it. You're just unfamiliar, mm -hmm. right? When I first, another first day memory is is probably must have been one of my first meetings about teaching ear training what, that same week. And uh, in those days, there wasn't, I mean, one of the things that's changed is I think we have a lot more overt conversation about a student-centered approach that is really trying to be friendly and helpful to students. And it was more of a tough love, like, you know, make it or, or, or head out, you know. Uh, attitude in the early days of my teaching experience, or at least that's how people kind of pretended to be. But although we did care very much about students. But um, what somebody said in that meeting was, there's two parts to ear training, fear training and ear straining. Fear training is when you have to sight sing in front of other people. And ear straining is when you have to do transcription and dictation and identification of 
chords and intervals. And, and it was like, That's so helpful. It sounds, yeah. so, um, <laughs> it sounds so unappealing, you know, and we all laughed and we all knew like, yeah, okay. I mean, and it was so in a way it was expressing uh, an empathy for students. It's like, this is how students feel about it. And this is what we have to overcome is this fear and straining feeling and make it, you know, we did talk about making it fun and more accessible and more successful. But we really work on that now. That's really what we're all about as a department. What we're and I, what I hope the student experience is. But it's still it is it is intimidating, and it a lot of it comes from this false belief in in inborn talent, or that you should have done it already. Mm -hmm. If you approach all your learning like I should have learned this before, and I'm ashamed, mm. it's not very much fun to practice. You know, right? It's more. It'd be better to kind of just reorient yourself and say. I know a lot of things. I got into this school or, or this situation. I, I enjoy music, but there are these other things that are I need to strengthen a little bit, you know, and uh, anybody can do it. There's, you know, this app uh, Couch to 5K. I am not an, uh, an advertisement for this app, but my sister is. She went from uh, never running to running a 5K and it, it takes you step by step and you have to approach ear training that way, too. It's like little increments that anyone can do pretty much and then uh move forward and don't give up and and if you're failing at ear training probably you just made the problem too hard i mean if you want to learn to sight read and you weren't a sight reading guitarist you wouldn't go well i think i'll buy the elliot carter second string quartet and put it on my music stand and read the viola part you know that isn't where you'd start you'd start right. with something that you could succeed at. You'd start with some half notes and getting getting your hand-eye coordination together. And um, you just need to do that with ear training and not be putting yourself down while you're doing it, but do something you can be about 85 to 95% correct at, mm -hmm. and then increase the challenge when you get, when you've improved on that. Add one more thing. You know, I'm thinking about Ian, your experience, because um, you're, you're a fairly recent alum and a performer. And so you've more recently gone through studying this very intensely at Berkeley and then applying it to your instrument. And I'm wondering um, what you're thinking about right now. Yeah, I mean, so I studied um, for a number of years at a different place in California and I had a really intense ear training and theory teacher. Um, and when I came to Berkeley, I tested into three. Um, oh, so, you know, and, you know, maybe some of the theoretical concepts were already like in my ear, you know, but like, it seems like there's another aspect of ear training that's just so helpful. Like to me, I, I love ear training. Like it's, in my opinion, like one of the most underrated aspects of a Berkeley education, because it's not just about like training yourself to hear things, which is a huge component of it. But like the other side of it is that it's just the practice of practice in a way where, you know, you're given these things to learn and you got to come in the next week and, you know, nail them on the head, you know, um, regardless of whether or not you know the theoretical concept. I mean, somebody who does, who maybe can hear it in their head, are they gonna look at that page and sight sing this, this exercise? You know what I mean? It's like, it to 
you know, to talk about this concept of, you know, talent, right? Somebody who can go in there and already knows everything or whatever, in a way, like, it's the people who are struggling and it's a challenge. It's like, that's you actually, you know, making progress on it, right? Just like it would be for this exercise app. It's like that rub, that difficulty is like actually, you know, you overcoming something, right? Mm -hmm. And that like to really learn something aside, because in our instruments, we get such a tunnel vision about the way we practice in our routines, the way we pick up the instrument. And ear training forces us to practice in a setting where we don't have, you know, our, uh, you know, comfortable zone of this instrument that we're so familiar with. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Alan, um, as Ian was talking there, um, I was thinking about some of the things that we've talked about together and with Cheryl about ear training being more than that's a major triad, that's a minor triad. It's also when you're playing, being able to really understand your sound and your tone and yeah. being able to hear how you sound. Like, can you really hear the differences in the gradations of your dynamics and your other parameters of sound, like the envelope of the notes that you play, whether they're staccato, legato, muted, anything like that, harmonics, all of that stuff, how that plays, um, your timbre, all these different things that are absolutely essential as a performer, right? Like the way you play yeah. a note is often just as important or more important than the notes you choose. And so I'm wondering how you've made those connections as a performer who then began teaching ear training and, and how you help people who are younger and less familiar practice that aspect of performance ear training. Yeah, that is such an important thing. And it's really important to me as a musician. Um, it's really important in all kinds of music, absolutely equally. Although I would say that my awareness of it grew from doing like free improvisation and new music, avant-garde music, different names and subgroups of it. But um, that's where I really started to work with these other parameters of music. If you look at it that way, you know, like, um, timbre as something that I could vary not just in a stylistically habitual way but actually like change it on purpose um, or the envelope of a sound almost thinking the way like a electronic composer who's working from scratch with sounds would would think um, which I never really did but in electronics um, the interesting thing about ear training is is and I, I usually talk to my students about exactly what you just said. In a way, the way that the Western music curriculum is organized, we kind of tend to sometimes filter things. So, that, you know, and it's, it's natural. I mean, if you want to talk about one thing, you kind of have to filter out some of the other things for temporarily. But you just have to remember that that's temporary. In other words, if we're focused on the pitch of notes in the equal temperament system uh, and just identifying whether something is the tonic or the fifth or the third or the minor third, you know, etc. In a way, we're ignoring timbre, you know, like if, if you're hearing that melt, that note on a vibraphone or a piano or a guitar, it doesn't really matter. Uh, we're, we're not looking for that answer. 
we're looking for the answer of what frequency is it in relation to the tonality. Um, and rhythms, sometimes we're looking for how does it fit into the notation grid, you know, to the nearest 16th note. We're not worried about, is, are you a little behind the beat? You know, you worry about that in ensemble, but in ear training, you're just basically rounding things off to accurate uh, uh, notational accuracy or whatever. And then you have to kind of sometimes go like, I also need to experience music in a more complete way, you know? I also need to take, I need to broaden, I need to adjust my lens and, or, you know, that's a visual metaphor, I guess, but, you know, sort of open myself up to hearing everything. I mean, to me, this is the wonder of, of all of this. This is why it stays inspiring is that you can come at it from so many different places. You know, sometimes when I, something that happens to me often, that really fascinates me is to hear music that I knew as a young person that I haven't heard in a while. Like I, I'll hear uh, Paperback Writer by the Beatles, which I loved when I was 10, I guess it came out. I'm pretty old. Um, and, you know, I listened to that song on the radio and I thought it sounded amazing. But if you asked me, well, how many voices are singing in harmony and are they double tracked and what are the chord changes and uh, does it modulate? I wouldn't be able to tell you that because when I was 10, I didn't know. So now when I hear it, I can hear both ways. Right. I can be like, oh, it takes me right back to when I was 10 years old and I hear all the feelings and the general vibe of it. But then I can also go like, oh, that's an interesting reverb, you know, that's kind yeah. of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can listen to it from a production point of view, from a harmonic point of view. I could probably write it out in 15 minutes, you know, uh, if I, you know, so it's like, it's almost surreal and overwhelming. And it's actually, people worry they're going to lose, it's going to lose its mystery. No, it's like 10 times more mysterious to me now. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it's so vivid and it's, it has so many different dimensions to it. Um, well, that's interesting what you're saying, because I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think that is the experience of the ear that things that you listen to at one time, you know, I, I mean, there were certain musicians that I, I couldn't listen to, like maybe someone like Alan Holdsworth when I was a Berkeley student, because uh, I was really into, you know, straight ahead jazz and it was just too much information for me. Mm -hmm. I didn't turn it away because I, I thought it's a challenge, but it was too challenging. It was like, wow, I got to work too hard for that. <laughs> But but then, you know, as years went by and I went out and experienced music and playing, then I went back and listened to that music and I could connect with it. And I think that's the thing. It, it, it's it's something you can't force, you know, your awareness of 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 that music. Um, it, and you have to give it time. You know, mm -hmm. it's almost like, you know, a seed you plant and you have to water it and and be patient with it. Mm -hmm. And then there'll be some point where you come back and wow, okay, wow, there's a flower there or whatever. And, and, and there were certain things that I remember I, I just, I couldn't get my ear around, but, but I, I guess I was at that point too studying music. I realized that. So I said, well, okay, let me just, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for it. And you come back later and I, I don't know. I mean, have you, I'm sure you, in that way, you're talking about that listening to the Beatles when you're. A kid, you listen to it on one level, but then as you've experienced and learned 
and listen to a lot of other music too. I think the more music that you listen to and expose yourself to, um, yeah, it just broadens your palate. If you think of your ears as a palate, you know. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You learn to hear more and to process it uh, faster. And I don't just mean analyzing it, but also just to kind of just feel it, you know, because you have you can start to get it in chunks or something. Like when you hear Alan Holdsworth, yeah, it could just sound like a blur. It's not rhythmically defined in the same way that like straight ahead jazz is. I'm not saying it's less rhythmically defined. It's just more like it's different you know, how the notes are laid out over the the meter and stuff like that. I saw him once. Yeah, that was uh, <laughs> amazing with uh, Tony Williams' lifetime when I was Ooh. in my early 20s. Yeah, that was awesome. a memorable gig. <laughs> there, were things, there were things going on on stage. And now I know Alan Pasqua, who was teaching, uh, who was the keyboard player, is uh, a, a faculty member in the Berkeley Global Jazz Institute. I've talked to him about that gig. He remembers it. But uh, yeah, there were a lot of things going on that I couldn't uh, mentally process. And I had a composition degree at that point. I'd probably just finished college and was playing jazz gigs for about four years and stuff. But it was it was just like frighteningly complex and fast and uh, odd meters and polyrhythms. And, you know, all these things were going on. It just uh, I was blown away. Um, and now, yeah, it still kind of blows me away, but I, I definitely hear more. And I don't think it ever ends. I mean, I'm, there's definitely things like, I mean, I'm 64 and I've been doing this. I really started learning about music beyond just like school band. When I was about 14, I started like buying books about music and studying, you know, out of a book about jazz improvisation and, uh, you know, reading history and all that kind of stuff and um, listening to different kinds of music that I didn't know, uh, many kinds. And uh, so that's 50 years. And I definitely have a pile of things I'm still trying to learn and work on, you know, mm -hmm. and I definitely notice progress. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. what I'm thinking about when you're talking about these experiences and Cheryl, yours as well, is these skills when you're listening are so useful. And imagine all the students who are thinking about, you know, their next professional opportunity or they're worried about their next audition. If you walk in to a session, if you walk into an audition and you feel more and more familiar with these elements of music, then you feel at home, you have a foundation in an unfamiliar situation that forces you to adapt. You know, I'm thinking about work I did as a producer in the recording studio. And that was one of the first times I kind of realized my ear training had evolved, like being in a session and being able to hear parts in a way that I could, you know, other people couldn't in the session, which is why I got hired for that job. Um, and, you know, we often hear in the office, Alan, like students saying like, well, I'm just, I don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to prioritize like working on guitar, because I think that's how I'm going to build my connections. You know, I don't know about the ear training. I might like kind of, you know, minimize my attention there. And I always tell them that one of my best recommenders um, for like the job I have now was my ear training teacher and theory teacher from freshman year in college. Wow. 
Yeah, who was yeah. Kari Usula? He became oh, yeah. Eugene, right, at Berkeley. But, you know, that was 15 years before, and I didn't know. I hadn't seen him in 15 years. And he said, oh, yeah, I, I heard you were applying. It's so great. And I told the committee all about what you were like as a year training student. And I thought, oh, oh, no. Like, what did you know about me? And it kind of now I made sense as a, as a musician now. But I think students, it would really blow them away to think that the person who's watching me learn these skills on my with my ear would know something about me holistically as a musician. And we know that's true. And and so like, what do you think you learn about the students? Like, what can you tell about them when you're teaching them ear training and watching their development in that way? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you... <laughs> You learn a lot about students. I understand. I mean, I'm, that's a lot. I'm taking in all the different aspects of what you're saying. I understand prioritizing um, your playing and, and making that the focus. That's natural. Um, I think you have to integrate these other things into it and see how they connect and not see them as isolated. You know, it's not it's not arbitrary or just a hurdle that somebody put up. I, part of the problem is unlearning what we got learn often in high school as people who are artistic and musical and don't want to major in the main core subjects of high school. <laughs> you know what I mean? <clears throat> I mean, your, if your profession isn't going to be uh, engineering or um, maybe English editing or something like that, you know, then the subjects of like reading, writing and arithmetic might seem like I just need to get this done. I need to pass. I need to maybe maybe you care about your GPA. Maybe you just care about graduating. Um, but ear training, if you're a musician, ear training is not one of those subjects. It is the raw material of sound, processing sound, remembering, understanding, translating. It's this web of skills, and it's not one skill. It's not just sight singing. It's not just dictation. It's it's a web of skills. It's connecting sound with symbols with the instrument and working both ways from the notation and from the sound to the notation or to the instrument. So it's all these, I would say it's like a, a globe of things that are interconnected. And so to look at it as I'm not going to prioritize that is kind of saying I want to be an incomplete musician who has weak skills. I can understand that the structure of the course maybe is is one thing and the inner skills are slightly a different thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the um, what I would suggest to a student just to be more practical is just make it part of your practicing. Mm -hmm. and understand that 12 minutes makes a difference if you do it five times a week. Mm -hmm. It's better to practice ear training 12 minutes a day than to do it for an hour on Saturday or Tuesday. It really is. <laughs> um, and if you just want to rest your hands after you warm up <clears throat> and sing some things, have your ear training book with your guitar materials and sing something and then play it. Mm -hmm. or um you know 
sing the scale in thirds and then play it or just make up melodies and use solfege which we use at berkeley movable dose solfege i mean it's just a system it's i'm not gonna you know it's not a religion it's just a system um that works it's one of the systems that you could use for that purpose it could be numbers or whatever you want to use um sing some things and then play them just that is building those connections that i'm talking about and it's going to make it easier for you to do all the things you want to do uh, or listen to something and try to figure it out but sing it and play it you know mm -hmm. One thing I just think would make a huge difference is just to use your voice more. <clears throat> and I do that. It took me a long time to realize that myself. But, you know, when I finally realized that it made a huge difference if I sang something before I played it. Mm. If I want to emphasize one thing is that if you want to build your inner hearing is a serious long term part of your memory. And we all have this little echo memory where if you go you know, blah, 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 blah. then the person can go blah, 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 back to you, you know, because that's how babies learn to speak all the languages of the world and how parrots learn to speak also. It's not very high level <laughs> of activity. Uh, or, you know, it's, it's this uh, mimicking, it's basically called echo memory. I mean, you know, they've located it in the brain. It's not the same place where you recognize the difference between major and minor when you hear it. It's just repetition. So if you play something and then sing it and play it, you're not doing that. But if you if you go like, what would that sound like? And you retrieve it from your deep long-term memory. Mm -hmm. And then you check and play it on the guitar and you go, ah, I sang major. I thought I was singing minor, but oops. Now you've learned something. You know what I mean? That's going right. to stick. So you gotta you got to do it the hard way. Well, but it's I not think, that hard. It's fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing of using your practice time with um, intention. You know, yeah. I mean, it can be fun to just blow off steam and go in and jam on a Stevie Ray Vaughan vamp or something. I mean, everybody needs to blow off steam, but I think that's what you're talking about, too, in terms of teaching students to approach it. You know, we have building blocks and we keep putting them together. But when you sit down to practice in that way, you're doing it with intention so that it gets you out of that thing of I'm just pushing down my fingers and something comes out and you're not connecting with it. You know? Yeah, I'm really that's, a, thing. that's what I, I practice almost every day and, and I structure my time and I reward myself by that free fun playing at the end. Sometimes I do a little bit at the beginning and the end, but I always almost always do you know, the scales and arpeggios. And, and one of the things I do is I put on a drone and I sing things and then play them. So I'm just, yeah. and even though I know I can do it, I do it anyway, uh, and because it's creative and it's fun. And I try to use all 12 notes, uh, you know, so if for somebody who's completed that process and knows that stuff, that's a way to do it. And I, sometimes I do it with a groove and sometimes I do it rubato, you know. Um, it's mm. almost like an Indian music kind of a vibe in a way. That's really cool. Um, you know, Alan, before we started the official conversation, we were just hanging, you had mentioned something that I think a teacher of yours said about when, when we were kind of chatting about like what you would know about someone's musicianship by working with them on their ear. I don't know if you remember. 
Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, that was my yeah. uh, my college uh, composition teacher. He was really an inspiring. Uh, he's almost like a Zen master kind of a guy. Uh, uh, Ronald Lopresti, and uh, his music is beautiful. Um, and uh, he was my composition teacher, and he would say these little thing gems to me. And one time, I I said, you know, I I I struggled with ear training. I was, let's say, I. I struggled to get A minuses and A's. I got through it and I worked hard at it. But when I was an undergraduate, I was not one of the people who just was like, I already know that. Mm -hmm. Not at all. I had to learn it from the ground up. Absolutely. Especially singing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had some bad days and some good days. <laughs> but I did work at it. I was a composition major and I also was doing jazz and classical music. Anyway, this he said, he said, you know, every time you... Uh, make a mark with your pencil in a composition you're showing me what you can hear mm. you know and it's not it's not that you know that should be i don't remember exactly what he said after that but but he made me feel like i'm not trying to intimidate you or or insult you or make you anxious i'm just saying that there are people who you know it, it's meaningful it needs to be meaningful what you put down there mm -hmm. and i I've been doing this longer and your audience is going to include people who can hear everything. Mm -hmm. And so get serious and, and be serious, you know, and, and be responsible. You're responsible for what you're writing and you need, you know, it's a priority to keep expanding your ear. This is what I took away from it. He didn't articulate all this. He was a person of few words. <laughs> um, he, he gave me a lot, a few of those unforgettable gems, but he's like, you know, everything you play and, and write, shows what you can hear yeah and i think that should make it not a, it's not intimidation it's not to put anyone down but it should make people who want to be good musicians inspired to work on it i hope that right. it has a positive effect yeah yeah because you're you're really um you're really getting to take a look at you have this opportunity to take a look at like what about all you've taken in can you demonstrate Mm -hmm. confidently and then if there's something you want to demonstrate confidently that's not coming out then you can go back and work on that yeah you know i think that's kind of the if i had to think of a final thought that i'm taking away i, I think it's that this should be as you're saying like kind of creative and empowering and thinking like this is your chance to kind of grab a hold of these things and make them work for your playing and really work on them yeah absolutely mm -hmm. I think a lot. I I know we we need to wrap up, right? Are we near the? Yeah, we're getting there. We're like right about that time. You like know, you know, we'd have to make another pot of coffee and do another. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I imagine that that student, uh, the rock guitarist, in my first hour of teaching, and she she was the first person to when I asked the class for a note, she was the first person to speak, and I I got to I didn't know her well, but I got to know her through the course a little bit more and what she did for a living and stuff. She was working rock guitarist and and. You know why I was thinking why does she stick in my mind is because she had what what my kids teachers call in elementary school a growth mindset. She was like, "Okay, tell me about that. I'll participate. Show me counterpoint. Show me th things that are not necessarily obviously directly re relevant to her identity and gig that year but she wanted to learn more as a musician and i don't mean mm -hmm. to become a fugue composer or whatever but to be a better guitarist in bands you know um and 
I sensed that right away. I mean, some students are shy and some are outgoing and that's all fine. And I, I don't want to judge anyone, but uh, anyone's growth, the mindset just by their participation. But what I'm, what I think students can do is just think about, instead of looking at this as a fearful or uh, a thing they're afraid of, or a thing that someone else is making them do, like a hurdle put in front of them between them and where they want to go to actually look at like, I want to learn. It's just an attitude adjustment. I mean, I want us to adjust to the students too. It's not a one way street. We're in a dialogue. And, but, but what students could do to make it more productive is to remember in all their classes and areas of their work that, you know, you have to say, I don't know, and I'm interested and I want to know, mm. or I might be interested at least. <laughs> <laughs> let's see, let's see, let's, you know, be a little curious and open about it rather than immediately relegating it to the category of painful things I have to do that someone making me do, which is kind of a high school and attitude about mm -hmm. some things or embarrassing because I'm not already good at it. You know, yeah. it's more like, oh, that's going to be an interesting adventure to go through that bumpy landscape of ear training and climb those mountains. You know, it should be like an adventure. That's great. Um, yeah. Ian, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah. So that actually brings up uh, a question that I've been asking everybody on this series. Um, and that like, you know, you have spent so many years, um, you know, first as a student and then as a professor and then later on running some of these departments, you know, um, what's something that you've noticed that were in your own experience being on both sides of this, what's something that maybe the students should be aware of or ask that they wouldn't necessarily have the wherewithal to know that they should ask that? Yeah, I think, uh, how can I apply this, uh, to my playing is something that, you know, uh, a little, it's not student's job to empathize with the teacher, but it might be helpful to the students sometimes to think about the fact that the teacher is teaching four vocalists, three guitarists, two music business majors, somebody who wants to be a, a film music composer. There's a lot of different things going on in the class. Some of the people already play a chordal instrument. Some of them have never played a chordal instrument. And so, the teacher's juggling all these things and trying to bring everybody along in this complex, multifaceted topic in which everyone has different strengths and weaknesses about using their voice, about harmonic recognition, things like that. And the student, um, something that can get lost in, in that process, which is very challenging for everyone, is what am, how can I apply this to my playing? And so I think if students asked that more how do you practice this how did what was the most successful thing you did to practice this and this is something i'm hoping we're going to talk about next week with some of the my favorite guitarists in the world one of whom is here right now mm -hmm. well two of them are here right now. <laughs> maybe three and i don't know uh but uh but um in the panel next week we're going to talk about this i would mm -hmm. ask them you know how do you practice this and how can you and how can i integrate this into my playing and daily practicing and growth, both while I'm in this course and in the future, which is a lot longer than the course. You know, mm -hmm. our courses are, 
we have two years of ear training if you, if a student goes through all four levels and is successful and maybe they'll take an elective which is great but um you know then you got about 60 or 80 more years to <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do with it then that's great uh cheryl do you have any final thoughts for alan yeah well alan thank you for coming here and, and sharing all your wisdom really i mean i was a student at berkeley and, and uh, we used your your books course books as students uh, so i learned from you then and now um um and and really i think the my favorite part about this was when you talked about your struggle with ear training you know uh, what I mean? I think that's so important is that we all have and we all started as beginners in some way. And also just you, it was really great for you to just talk about there is a process for this and, and be patient and take your time and you'll get there, you know? And we don't know how long that time. Everybody works in their own ways. But I, I think, thank you for sharing that because I, I, it, it's great to hear that from my point of view, and I'm sure for a lot of listeners out there, they'll be like, oh, wow, Alan Chase struggled with hearing an A minor chord? Okay, there's hope for me. <laughs> yes, well, I, I've got to say that most of our faculty are the kinds of, they're very good at it now, and most of them are not people who uh, aced it uh, instantly, were placed instantly into you know level four of everything. Most of them had to learn it and remember learning it. That's great. Yeah. Um, so, Alan, you referred to a panel, and so for everyone who's going to be watching this, you can find the panel that Alan's referring to in a separate recording on our YouTube playlist, um, for sure. It will be a video recording of Alan and I interviewing Cheryl Bailey, Wayne Krantz, Lainey Stern, and Mike Stern about performance ear training topics, so you can go ahead and look for that. And... Um, Thank you, Alan Chase. Thank you for being our guest on Coffee Talk. It's my pleasure. Cheers to you. Thank you, Cheers Alan. to you as well. Thank you, Ian. Cheers to all Thank of you. Thank you, Cheryl. And uh, we'll see you guys next time, everybody.